Coming up on today's show, I give you my thoughts on the new Helios 64 Ultimate Arm-Powered NAS. And Chris has a huge sack full of your feedback. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm Chris, and this is self-hosted 33. <laughs> After last week's episode, everyone got the impression that both you and I were iOS users exclusively, but that's not actually the case. I am a whore to different OSs, Chris. I use Linux, <laughs> okay. Mac OS, Windows, Android, iOS on a daily basis. So I think I, uh, I don't think I fall into that camp of being pigeonholed as an iOS user. I'm trying not to be offended, but it's hard. <laughs> well, you know what it was is because we were talking about audiobooks and we didn't mention uh, any audio players for Android. <laughs> we only mentioned them for iOS. <laughs> but that was just, that was my bad. <laughs> I'll tell you why that is. It's just simply because BookSonic's been so reliable for my wife that yeah. I didn't feel the need to try anything else. But there's some really good options that some listeners have sent in. Yeah, we'll link to those in the show notes uh, for the for the Android ones that got at least a couple of mentioned via the email. I also have an Android and iPhone, but I do I do mostly, mostly use the iPhone. Uh, but I do love my Pixel 3. It is time for an upgrade. I'm just not in a particular rush. But I am in a rush to tell you about a Cloud Guru. This episode is brought to you by the all-new Cloud Guru, the leader in learning for cloud Linux and other modern tech skills. They have hundreds of courses and thousands of hands-on labs. So get certified, get hired, and get learning. Go to cloudguru.com. I feel like our roles have reversed this episode. This Helio 64 hardware you're about to tell me about seems like something I would have bought. And it, it like would have been the natural upgrade from a Raspberry Pi 4 NAS to something a little more hardcore. Uh, so I'm extremely interested to know what your experience has been like with the, with the Helio 64. And is it Cobol? Is that how you say the company? Cobol, I guess. Yeah, like the element. Yeah, this, this thing bills itself as the ultimate arm-powered NAS, and COBOL is the name of the company behind it. Uh, you can find them at COBOL.io, and they have a couple of products, but the one that I picked up was the Helios 64. Now, this thing purports to be, as it says, the ultimate arm-powered NAS. It has five hot-swap SATA 3 bays. Uh, it has an M2 SATA port. It supports hot plug for those drives. It's... Uh, got two gigabit ethernet ports one of which is 2.5 gigabit um usb-c it's got a micro sd card slot a couple of usb ports and it's no bigger than you know your average synology type box okay so it's about synology size i was just going to ask you that it also has emmc for storage and then i understand it's a hexacore processor but i i don't really know what that actually means in terms of real world performance yeah, so well, I'll come on to all that later, but uh, six core system on a chip, ARM wow. system, uh, four gigs of RAM. The EMMC is 16 gigabytes. You know, Alex, if this thing performs half as good as the specs sound, I'm going to be pretty impressed. We'll get there. <laughs> One feature I thought was just unbelievably cool and just shows the power efficiency of ARM is this thing has a built-in UPS. It's got a pair of 18650 cell batteries in there. You don't know how cool this is. You just you have a NAS on, on your desk. You unplug it from the wall and the thing just stays running for 15 minutes. You pick it up and walk around the house with it. I mean... That is that is great. I mean, I'm not going to do that because I need a, a network cable and stuff. But in terms of money, I mean, you look at how much you could spend on just a UPS. That's easily 100 or two for a, a decent one. You know, and to have that built into this unit 
for the ticket price of $295, which didn't include shipping. I think I paid about $330 for it to be shipped. Uh, overall, the, the proposition is great. It also has a direct attached storage mode as well as a USB Type-C display mode. So in the promo materials, at least, they show it hooked up to your TV running Kodi, which I thought was a really interesting use case. That could be nice if, you know, the budget only allows for one machine. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, I'll come on to my impressions uh, in a second. But first of all, I wanted to let the audience know that this thing is... uh, it's a little DIY. So so when it when it arrived, it was a kit. It was a box with baggies full of screws and drive trays and stuff. It's not fully assembled. And the assembly took me about two, two hours or so. And that's on top of about a three-month lead time for ordering it. So I'd waited, I think I ordered at the end of August. Uh, and when I ordered, it told me it was going to be delivered in September September came and went and I looked on the website and it silently updated to October. October came and went and silently updated to shipping soon. And then it went on the slow boat from China. So it took literally, like, felt like forever. You know, it left China and you don't hear from it again for weeks. And then suddenly this box shows up at my door and I'm like, oh, yeah. I ordered this thing ages ago. <laughs> yep. Yep. And if you go to their website right now, it doesn't say buy, it says pre order. So it's like another batch is coming. Yes. Uh, I think they're sold out of the batch that I have here, which is, I think, the first one. Now, what I will say is that the machined aluminium housing that it comes in is gorgeous. The The outside, the look of it, sat on a shelf, this thing looks really premium. I love how it looks. The downside to it, to them being a an upstart in the kind of case manufacturing world is there's a lot of rough edges. And I, I mean, literally it drew blood because in the odd place, because there are so many sharp edges to just to catch you. It's like building a, uh, a computer was 15 years ago um, before people like Fractal came along and really stepped up the game. So absolutely. <laughs> the outside looks great and, you know, sat on a shelf, which is where it's going to spend 99% of its life. Uh, it's, it's a huge thumbs up. But they have cut some corners in several very important areas. If you look at the product picture on the website, the front I.O. panel has what looks like a laser etched, you know, um, power button and reset button and, you know, HDD number one through five with little LEDs for LAN and USB. That looks like it's a laser etched LED kind of front panel, right? It's a sticker, isn't it? It's a sticker. Yep. Yeah. And it's on this flimsy little PCB that's held in with a couple of small screws. And if you push too hard, the entire thing the sticker is stuck to kind of flexes and moves, Mm -hmm. which makes this ultra premium, beautiful aluminium chassis feel like it it should cost a fraction of what it does. So that's disappointing. The same is also true of the rear IO panel. There are stickers there that go over the, um, the panel there. So in future revisions, I would love to see actual laser etching because I, I know that stuff doesn't come for free, but I think that is going to make a huge difference to the overall quality of the product, just the fit and finish. If it bumped the price to another 50 bucks, would it be worth it to you? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm going to come on to price uh, at the end, I think, um, once you've heard the overall impression. <laughs> You're just teasing it out. I got you. <laughs> Now, another thing uh, that is a bit tricky is once you finally got it assembled, which, as I say, was a bit fiddly and took about two hours, 
they do have fantastic documentation. I just want to say that up front. wiki.cobol.io is built around MKDocs, one of my favorite self-hosted wiki solutions. And the, the quality of the documentation and the open schematics they have on there for all of the you know, SATA controllers and the way that different things connect to each other and stuff, it's great, you know, um, and I'm, I, there's, there's a lot this company have done right. So I want to just preface everything I'm about to say by saying most of it is good, but there's just a few other problems with it. So let's go on to installing the operating system. This isn't simple. So you have to flash the OS to the eMMC via a USB-C cable, uh, which you do using, you know, Bellina Etcher or something like that. That's not too difficult, really, but it could be easier. It could be a USB key that you flash, which we're a lot more used to. They are making use of the direct USB-C attachment to do that. So eh, once you've got the drivers installed into Windows, which is what I was using, it's not too bad, but I can just imagine trying to talk my family through it over the phone or something. It's, that's not going to work. The next thing is that once you've put the OS onto the eMMC, you think to yourself, right, I just press go and it's going to auto configure and appear on the network. Well, not quite. You have to use something like Putty to connect to a serial console and do some initial ambient configuration before it will boot and get a network IP address. Can you give me an idea of what kind of Armbian configuration you have to do there? That's that's getting in the weeds pretty quick, it sounds like. Yeah, if you've ever installed uh, Raspberry Pi 1 or something, you know, back in the day, you know, a lot of these things had wizards that you followed. I mean, it, it wasn't difficult to do. It was just stuff like set a host name, set a time zone, uh, you know, what do you want your boot order to be, that kind of stuff. But it's an in-curses kind of walk you through it wizard style? Correct, yeah. And it's over a USB-C serial console, so it, it looks straight out of the, the movie Hackers or something, you know. But uh, once it's booted, um, it's it's very nice. It's very quiet. The, the fans that are in there are, I think, fairly cheap Chineseium PWM fans. So I replaced them with a pair of Noctua fans and noticed a... A reasonable drop, not not a seismic drop in, in noise, but definitely noticeable. Now, the fans are controlled using a fan control program, which is linked to CPU temperature right now. So that unfortunately leads to the fans going quite a lot as you, uh, you know, run a particularly heavy, you know, whilst you're doing apt update, install, whatever. Uh, the fans will go bananas, even though the CPU temperature is only at about 60 degrees. Uh, and the hard drives, which are the important thing in there, in my opinion, <laughs> right. have moved not at all. So <laughs> one thing I would like to see them address uh, moving forward is have that temperature control or the speed control more accurately, I suppose, for the fans be linked to kind of overall chassis ambient temperature or take an average of the hard drives and then divide it by five or whatever. Uh, and then do the fan curves based on that. I think I found a, th a forum thread that said they were going to do that, but I couldn't find it researching for the episode again. So the fan noise isn't too bad, but it, it's just really when they ramp up and down that you're going to notice it. Now, it has been on the entire time we're recording right next to us. So it maybe it's maybe two feet from this microphone, which is a very sensitive one. Uh, so it is quiet when you're not doing anything with it. I had a real problem trying to get ZFS working, which as you can imagine is 
is a problem for me because uh, my primary use case for this this box was going to be a local ZFS remote replication endpoint. It was going to just sit in a in a closet quietly, getting on with its its life, and it was just going to be a ZFS target. But because it's running Armbian, because it's an ARM CPU, and not full on Ubuntu, the ZFS modules aren't in the kernel. And then that leads you down the road of having to do DKMS and worry about specific kernels. And after about two or three hours last night, I just gave up. I wanted to throw my laptop at the wall because, man, I hate DKMS. Yeah, it's always that, oh, right moment when you're doing your updates and then you realize, oh, I'm going to have to wait for this. Oh, I hope it doesn't break. <laughs> well, I just couldn't get it working. I mean, I, I as well, I say that. I had it working and then the kernel upgraded without me noticing. And then I, I just haven't been able to get it to work since. So there's a pair of drives in there that are ZFS ready, but I just can't get the the, the module to load. So maybe I'll get it working over the next few weeks. But, but right now it's a pain in the ass, to be honest with you. And that's a real shame because they actually bill, and this this was a learning for me. I was speaking with Popey on Twitter over the weekend. For those of you that don't know, Popey works for Canonical, so he knows a thing or two about Ubuntu. And uh, he was schooling me on the fact that even though on the COBOL website it says it's a focal fossa image, 2004 image, it's not Ubuntu. Even though it says Ubuntu and has the Ubuntu logo, Ambien is not Ubuntu. So you live and learn. You're telling me on their website they claim it's Ubuntu? So if you go to wiki.cobol.io slash download and take take a look at the images there, Chris, and tell me what you think. Is that misleading or is it just me being an idiot? It is it's like they have they have Debian 10 Buster and Ubuntu 2004 listed. Is essentially what it is. They have both, it looks like. It's hard to say though. It's hard to say when you click it. Uh I'd have to actually down you're right. It is it is a little vague. I'd have to download to actually to actually determine. And so then if you scroll down that page a little further, you get a bunch of known limitations regarding some of the hardware things. So one of the issues that that I ended up uh, facing was I plugged my gigabit LAN switch into the 2.5 gigabit Ethernet port that's on the thing. And I ended up getting horrible. I'm talking like 10 or 15 megabyte out of a thousand, right? So very, very slow performance and it turns out it requires a hardware fix now i'm going to put a link to this in the show notes but if you're interested go and take a look at what their proposed fix is it's to solder a wire on the back of the pcb (laughs) are you gonna do it (laughs) i am i mean that's almost that's almost your kind of thing (laughs) i am because i'm comfortable with it because i've been doing you know building racing drones and stuff for years I'm, i'm quite comfortable at soldering small stuff but this wire would be maybe two centimeters long, if that, and going on to very, very tiny surface mount components and a, and a small pin. Uh, so if you screw that up, uh, I don't know what the warranty would say about that. They don't really mention anything. Right. And, you know, the final conclusion at the end of this post is we will, of course, fix this issue in a future revision of the board. But what they don't say is what they're going to do for everybody that has current boards. My assumption is nothing. That's perhaps it shows some wisdom in choosing to do these in batches because they realize that they're going to have kinks to work out. Perhaps. I, I would like the option to send mine back for a replacement. Yeah, that, I could see that seems seems reasonable. They may not be too excited about offering that because they don't even have probably devices to replace yours with. Sure. 
But if you're a company offering a product, I think maybe a refund, something, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't know, because if I screw this up, which, you know, with a soldering iron on some, some components that are that small is very possible. Sure. What then am I up the Creek without a paddle? <laughs> then you've got a really nice looking piece of equipment. <laughs> yeah. Now I think if, if these guys had marketed it such that here is a kick-ass aluminium, beautiful machined case that you can buy that by the way also we sell a kit that fits inside of i think it would be a completely different proposition but they didn't they tried to go full apple do the os do the hardware do the software right and for me they, they've just fallen short in in, a, in enough key areas that it's really taken the shine off the product for me uh, another example is um and again this is my fault because i can't read apparently the um M2 SATA slot that's built into the motherboard disables SATA port one. So you suddenly go from having a five, three and a half inch drive capacity, you put an M2 drive in there and suddenly the one of the bays is, is useless. Oof. Why not spend the extra few cents on a SATA controller that can do six devices? I just don't understand why they would cut that corner. It's just really annoying. And then uh, I suppose the other thing that kind of um, tripped me up was the USB-C cable that ships with the product. I actually had to cut some of the rubber off the outside of it to make it fit in the port properly. Uh, they have a, a wiki article about that. There's just a lot of rough edges, literally, um, with this product. That said, all, all of this said, and I, I'm aware that that all sounds a little bit negative, the reality is I bought a product it shipped, it's a, it arrived eventually, sat on, it sat on my desk next to me working and pretty much as advertised. The hard drive hot swap caddies are a little bit hard to get in and out because the manufacturing tolerances. I, I spoke with um, with uh, Gautier at, uh, at Cobol about this and he said that it's only during mass production that we can start to see what really needs to be improved because at the prototyping stage, different factories will always show us their best in terms of tolerances. That's an interesting insight. They do say they're going to rework the backplane for the drives, which is my other major complaint with this unit. So the backplane for the five SATA drives are these little plastic things that convert the ketchup and mustard cables uh, into a SATA power and SATA data connector. And they've got these really very, very small, thin plastic tabs on either side to mount them to the chassis. And I bent a couple of them just by inserting a drive slightly misaligned, which was enough to make the power pins on the drive have contact. So when I was putting the drive in, I could hear it spinning up. So I'm like, okay, cool. The drive seated fine, but it wasn't making contact with the data pins. And it took me a couple of hours to figure that out. Oh, I bet. So yeah, once I took it, I basically had to take the whole thing apart again, saw that I'd bent the tabs, I guess, just by having to push so hard to get the drives in because the tolerances were so tight. Uh, it actually shaved plastic off the drive caddies. Um, as I did so, I guess I just bent the, the, the connector at the back. You're super tough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, You're strong. the, the drive, <laughs> I'm strong, man. The, uh, the drive caddies themselves are, are not toolless. You need to use four screws to mount drives into the caddies and then two screws to secure the caddies into the drive bays themselves um, as well. So, you know, it's not perfect. And I think for the price of 300 ish dollars, 
I look at what we could get from Synology or QNAP, and I'm having a hard time with it. What would be the advantage here? Because uh, the like the Synology products and the QNAP products, they offer a lot of features. So what do you think the Helio 64's biggest advantage over those would be? Well, we didn't talk about performance yet. Uh-huh. I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm waiting. Basically, if you want to do transcoding, forget about it. Of anything. Oh. Uh, it can handle direct play just fine. Uh, it will just about handle transcoding a true HD audio track, uh, but not much more than that. And even then, the CPU is going bananas trying to do it. So uh, I'd like to see some hardware circuitry, a bit like you know Apple Silicon is doing to get some of those crazy numbers with the M1. Some hardware decoders for H.264, H.265, that kind of thing. Maybe some kind of quick sync of some sort. <laughs> well, yes, that's the other elephant in the room, isn't it? I mentioned Synology and QNAP because they are off-the-shelf, ready-to-go products that yeah. you could send to your family and say, right, just shove a couple of hard drives in it and I'll do the rest remotely. You know, you could, and over at serverbuilds.net right now, actually, they've uh, they've been linking on eBay this UNAS chassis, which can take a mini ITX motherboard and run whatever OS you want on it, and you have full control over everything, uh, which I think is the primary advantage of the Helios 64 over a, a Synology device is that you own it, right? It's not, you're not beholden to whatever Synology decide to do with uh, DSM moving forward or who knows. Right. And the fact that they offer both Ubuntu and Armbian is is rather nice. You have some choice there. You could probably put Arch on there if you tried hard enough. But I think the other thing, the other story with these ARM devices, and for some of us it matters more, is is power usage. And it, it may, the Helio 64 may have them licked there. 30 watts at full load. Whoa, really? Mm -hmm. That's pretty impressive. With all the drives spun up. Right, right. Compare that to my dual Xeon system in the basement that's pulling 300 and something at idle, you know? Uh, so there is a real benefit to having these low power devices you know the fans that i mentioned run at zero rpm most of the time yeah i'm really glad you checked that because fan noise and power draw i think are the big part of these arm devices in a review is you got to look at that because that's where they're going to be most competitive so it does seem like as far as, far as noise because you're, you're podcasting with it right now and as far as power draw it may beat what those other products have to offer maybe it, it might, uh, as long as you're aware of all of the caveats going in and the fact that you are basically a, a, a beta tester for this product, as long as you're fine with all of those things, then go for it. You know, I, I was hoping for a bit more uh, of a finished product, like particularly from the software perspective, there's lots of things in Armbian that on the Helios 64 uh, forums, users are talking about fan control being one of them and there's a few other things as well. If you look at the known issues on the download page in the wiki, you know you can see that some kernels will let you monitor the, the internal battery. Some kernels won't. Uh, Suspensor RAM is not supported uh, because of some issue with the USB host controller. Uh, some kernels have kernel panics on shutdown and some don't. And so you are very much a beta tester. Uh, and I think for the price, it's a bit hard to swallow. But it is a beautiful physical thing. That it is. And it, it needs to start somewhere. 
these devices will only get better over time. They'll be able to add things like accelerated hardware, accelerated decoding. It may even be possible with the SOC it has. Maybe it just hasn't been enabled via software yet. Yeah. So those things will improve. And they are they are going to address things like uh, the wire harness approach I mentioned for the backplane. They're going to move to a PCB backplane on the next batch uh, to, to address issues exactly like the one that I faced. So, you know, they are going to improve things over time. And if all my $300 has served to do is enable them to eventually build the ultimate ARM-powered NAS, then it might be worth it. And I think ARM is the future. Apple are, Apple are showing us that. You know, just the sheer power on offer with that M1 chip. I mean, it's. I, I've been watching the benchmark videos over, over the weekend, and uh, wow, I mean, <laughs> it's fast, that thing. Yeah. And I have to tell you that 30 watts is extremely appealing to me. I'm sure it is. Yeah, Mr. I run on batteries in the middle of the middle of the desert half the time. Right. So that to me is something where it's like, okay, I want to see where this goes. Uh, but, you know, your your review here has has made me appreciate something I don't think I've really thought about when it comes to pre-built NASs. Because I think traditionally both you and myself have done it the more like complicated way where we build an x86 server and it has a bunch of disks and like my case i i went and i went to a unit or i think it's unix surplus is that what it's called and uh i got myself you know a, a whole chassis and i have big disks slided in there and that's how i do a nas this is a these smaller nases these product nases like like the helio 64 and like the synologies they're um they're a category of their own and the point that you made about how things like the battery detection and the thermal sensors and those things not quite being worked out because right now they're not upstream everywhere yet. In a couple of years, they'll probably it'll probably be universal across Linux distros where that stuff is supported. But with something like DSM, they're building it for that device to support that specific device and their other ones. And so they can purpose load hardware and software to make sure everything works together so you can get something that runs DSM and have a pretty, you know, as long as you've looked at the specs, it's going to do hardware decoding of your Plex videos because they've they've got the chip and they've got the software and they're going to support it and because it's one package. And if you're going for these one package products that are everything from the chassis disk to the OS, it seems like that might be the more appliance-like strategy where you know you're going to have better long-term luck. And uh, I mean, I have, I think, I don't know, Alex, it, it it actually could be a six year old, seven year old Synology at Angela's house, and it's still running today. And about a month ago, I logged into it and did a bunch of updates, and and, and it's still running twenty four seven out in a garage for I mean, may even be seven years. Yeah, you buy these things to be an appliance. You shove the discs in, turn it on, and off you go. Uh, and that should that should be the end of it. That's that's the last thought you should give this type of device, in my opinion. I did note on their website that they have adapters, so you can put two and a half SSDs in there, which is probably what I would do for vibration resistance. But they're they're about six bucks a pop, so all, all in, I'd I'd probably be close to four hundred dollars if I was going to buy this thing. If I was interested in power savings, if I didn't need hardware accelerated decoding, or if I felt like maybe it was going to get fixed, would you recommend it to me? Because I may be the target audience for this thing. It's a tricky question to answer. I I think. Uh, yes, but with the caveats we've discussed. You think the price is right? As long as you go into it with, with your eyes open, then definitely maybe. It depends on you. It, it's not for <laughs> it's not for everybody. That I think is my answer. It, it's not for everyone. 
Well, I want to thank a cloud guru for sponsoring this episode of Self-Hosted, and they do have their Black Friday sale going. We'll have a link in the show notes. You know the cloud is growing, and so is the demand for skilled cloud professionals. 82% of hiring managers say cloud certifications make a candidate more attractive. Well, ACG's Black Friday sale is your last chance for low prices this year. Keep up with change and develop the skills you need with a cloud guru. Developing cloud fluency can be hard, and it's even harder to keep up. So they make it easy by providing an engaging way to learn, retain, and stay competitive. Get the best price possible by using our Black Friday link in the show notes. You can get that at selfhosted.show slash 33. And thanks to Cloud Guru for sponsoring this episode of Self Hosted. Turns out our listeners are the target market for audiobooks. Who'd have thought, Chris? People that like podcasts also like audiobooks. Yeah, I guess when you put it that way, it does seem kind of obvious, but Man, did we get a lot of feedback about audiobooks. So I collected, like I mentioned earlier in the show, some of the apps that people sent in. But I also thought I would just cover a couple of the more clever ways people are consuming their audiobooks once they have freed them from their DRM or or acquired them in some other means. And Phil wrote in and he said, stop thinking about audiobooks as some special thing you need a specific player for. Audiobooks are basically identical to podcasts. Just use a podcast player and publish your audiobooks via an RSS feed. We got like eight different versions of how people are converting their audiobooks into podcast feeds. It seems to be really popular. Phil here, he's written a Python script that generates an RSS feed given from a folder. He put that behind some HTTP server with basic authentication. And then he says, with that, I've built a Docker container that hosts my audiobooks in an RSS feed. (laughs) <laughs> and he just has that, and then he subscribes to that in his app. He says, I'd actually be happy to release the script and container to the community, uh, but they aren't really ready for public consumption yet. It would be great if I could get a few spare cycles from someone in the community to clean it up before releasing the code. Maybe you can help facilitate such things. And Alex, we got a couple of people that have come up with clever scripts on how they convert things or do what, and they they often ask, should I share it with the community? And it got me thinking – Maybe we could use our GitHub for that because people won't know how to find individual GitHubs for all of this. Mm. Maybe there's a way for us to use our GitHub as a jumping off point for people's uh, Ansible scripts and cool Python scripts and other stuff. There's several things came in. So let's let's you and I ruminate on that because that might be a way we could facilitate some of this. And then you combine that with the Discord and it could be cooking with gas again. I like cooking with gas these days. We do have that wiki that's been sort of languishing a little bit. Lately, so may- maybe we could ha- have the the best audiobook playing wiki page on the internet, something like that. That'd be pretty good. Turns out though that there's not a lot that you can't do with FFmpeg. I know, yeah, including convert your Audible books. Turns out, Phil and actually a couple of others, and this probably is what Open Audible is just doing on the back end. Really, has a has a lot FFmpeg script to check and convert. One more podcast trick. This one comes from James. He says he uses Open Audible to download his uh, purchases to his home server, and then he has a PHP script and a cron job to auto-generate RSS feeds for any book that appears in the audiobooks directory. I have another tiny script that then creates an index of all the RSS feeds. When I want to listen to a book, I just add the feed to AntennaPod. It's super handy, and it takes care of all of the offline syncing issues and lets me choose if I want to listen to a whole book on, on the go or a podcast here and there in between chapters using Smart Shuffle. It's basic... But maybe I should publish my scripts. Would anybody want that? Where could I do that? <laughs> well, you know what they say, sharing is caring. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get that going. Um, so, yeah, I, there's several that came in, but it was interesting to see people using different tricks to convert them to uh, podcasts. I don't know, Alex. It's not my it's not my jam. I got to be honest with you. Something like Book Sonic or an audiobook dedicated app still kind of seems to be more my speed. That's the beauty of this kind of stuff, though. You know, in term in the self hosted world, is that there's not really ever a right or a wrong answer to this kind of stuff. True, I and mean, this is once you have your data, once you control your data, you can serve it up to yourself, however, wherever you like, mm-hmm. and that's one of the advantages of it. So, Luck wrote in, and this is a tip that goes back to our, our discussion last episode, where we were experimenting with a Google Photos replacement. I don't know. Do you still have that going? Uh, I probably do, but I haven't opened it in two weeks. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things we were talking about was what would be the best way to get the photos off your phone and into a directory where this tool could index and do all of the object recognition. And um, Luck wrote in to say, check out Photosync. It's photosync-app.com. It's available for iOS and Android. And it supports tons of ways to transfer from like all of the typical cloud services, but it also supports S3 uploads, NFS uploads, WebDAV uploads, Samba, etc. And we got a couple of people that are trying to do their uploads to S3 and then having that app, which I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, analyze the photos. And so this app supports S3, NFS, WebDAV. So there's a lot of ways you could get these up on your home server to then point PhotoPrism at it. Photosync dash app.com if you want to check that out now our next bit of feedback comes from draw d-r-o-r i'm sorry i'm gonna go with draw i just found out about your podcast a couple of weeks ago and i'm on a marathon catching up with the previous episodes so far i'm enjoying it many thanks for all the tips thank you very much now i've i'm stuck in a wanting mode where i pretty much know my needs but i'm failing to actually make purchases (laughs) we've all been there you're in you're in the research phase draw (laughs) too much choice is paralyzing you yes definitely been there Uh, so storage backups nas wise I'd like to start with decent storage for my media, but I'm far from being a hardware and network guy. Where would you recommend to start without diving too deep into learning all this stuff? Uh, Would a couple of my book, Western Digital Hard Drives, work? And what would I connect them to? Uh, Regardless, maybe you might discuss it later, but uh, what about Mycroft as well as a self-hosted Google Home replacement? So this is a great email because this is the maybe the candidate we were just talking about for the Helio 64 versus something like a Synology or a QNAP. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, to get started, a Raspberry Pi with a couple of USB hard drives connected will do you just fine. Yeah, you know, don't don't be shy when you write in. Let us know what your budget is and um, let us know what your comfort level is, like your DIY comfort level, your budget and your DIY comfort level, because Alex and I are totally happy making recommendations anywhere on the spectrum. So you could go with Raspberry Pis, like Alex was saying, and hook up a couple of USB disks and you'd really be off to the races um, you, as long as you're comfortable configuring Samba or something like that or or maybe even going something with like cockpit. And what I would say as well is that uh, over the last several years over at linuxserver.io, uh, I've been writing the Perfect Media Server series. Uh, go and take a look at that because in that series, I cover Docker, uh, MergerFS, which is a, an awesome bit of software, uh, with SnapRaid as well for you know drive parity to protect you from drive failures a little bit, um, that kind of stuff. And I, I talk about the overall kind of 
decisions you've got to make. And, and hopefully, when you start looking against your requirements versus what some of this software can do, you'll start to narrow down your your field of, of decisions a little bit, and it should make things a bit easier for you. Uh, I don't cover hardware. There's plenty of other good pieces of uh, journalism about that. So Brian Moses writes a really good blog every year, I think, on uh, the the perfect NAS build. Uh, of course, there's serverbuilds.net as well, which is always a great resource. Um, but yeah, I mean, just just feel free to let us know what your budget is or drop into the Discord. We have a hardware channel. I'll add to that. And you were touching on it there, Alex. I think what he needs to do is figure out what his primary app or use cases, and then build for that. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's what he's lacking. Because he may also be a good QNAP or Synology candidate, and uh, where he wants to, instead of instead of struggle with the networking and OS aspect of it, he'd rather learn at the application level, where he could deploy the applications using a UI that they provide and learn the applications, and then maybe from there, get a passion, get rolling, get enthusiastic about this stuff, and then go more towards the DIY route. I think that is really common for people is they they have an application or a use, they build for that, they kind of take the easiest route possible that is sustainable for them. And then when, when they go hardcore, they just start going even deeper. And that may be what happens to you. So consider maybe one of those one of those Synology or QNAPs like we were talking about earlier that'll make it a lot easier just get going with the applications but still give you a good solid base to run everything from. A really expensive requirement to ask yourself about is do I need to transcode? So with Plex, if you want to watch stuff on your phone or on your TV or anywhere, anywhere really, it will go ahead and transcode on the fly. So it will convert the video that you have to whatever format the device you're watching it on can can play back it will also reduce the quality so it will take a 1080p quality file for example and convert it all the way down to dvd quality or something like that you know if you if you're on limited bandwidth but that requires some very specific hardware choices around cpus or gpus and that kind of stuff so i mentioned a pi earlier but that wouldn't be the best choice if you want to transcode for example so you know lots of options but it depends like chris says on what you want to do And our last one today, although we did get some other emails in, so we will queue those, but also do please keep sending those in at selfhosted.show slash contact. We have a form there. You fill it in and it lands in our inbox. And uh, Russell writes in with our last one, and it's it's a bit of a workaround for you OpenHab users out there. Alex and I are obviously deep into Home Assistant, so we don't have a lot of OpenHab experience, but we do like getting tips. And Russell writes in and says, to my knowledge, OpenHab doesn't have anything built into it that detects dawn, dusk, sunrise, sunset, etc. So I wanted to set something up myself, and I turned to Python. But every library I found that used calculation-based time had an issue where, after a year or so, the sunrise and sunset times would be wildly incorrect. Uh, He goes on to say there's a couple other libraries that were just very out of date. Uh, So to make it work, I got myself a free API subscription to ipgeolocation.io. The free developer subscription allows for 30,000 requests per month with 1,000 per day, which is way more than the two calls I use, one to get the sunrise, sunset times, and another to get UTC offset. That's that's how you can also handle daylight savings, which, nice catch, Russell. He goes on to say, I use a cron job to call the Python script, which retrieves the times every day and then runs an at command to schedule the sunrise, sunset triggers. It works really well. And the documentation is easy to understand. I highly recommend it for anyone looking for sunrise or sunset solutions. He needs a good way to share that script, though, because I think people could take advantage of that. Cheers, he says. 
well, good, good, good work around there. You know, like open hab might not have it built in, but he came up with a way to make it work. And, uh, you know, that's all it really takes. So, uh, my, uh, my tip of the hat to you there, Russell. All right. So coming up on December the 13th is the home assistant conference tickets to attend will be $1, which they're going to use to cover the cost of the platform. Obviously it's a virtual conference for obvious reasons. Um, so it's Sunday, December the 13th, and that is at 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which I think is 7 p.m. Central European Time. So hopefully, with it being on a Sunday, that should fit most people's schedules. Interesting. I, I of course, signed up. I got my ticket. I'm all in. I'm going to go. Um, they will have it just on YouTube as well, I think, from reading their website. You don't have to sign up. And uh, I'm going to keep my eye on the conference. And if there's some really great audio, I may grab some clips. You know, I may could happen i'm particularly looking forward to just seeing how different people work with home assistant you know there's a couple of sessions around improving yaml workflows uh there's one here which might be interesting for you uh, on the main stage managing an off-grid vehicle with home assistant stop it are you serious uh-huh somebody's doing my bit no. <laughs> that's great i should like pick them for all the knowledge they have that's, I did not see that. As well as reverse engineering a 433 hertz megahertz RF protocol. I did see that one. That could be useful for, you know, hacking some of the uh, little remote controls you have for like garage door openers and that kind of thing. So as usual, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact to find more ways to get in touch with us. And you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. Yeah, I'm there too, at Chris LAS, and the show is at Selfhosted Show. Don't forget the network is at Jupiter Signal. Thanks for listening, and that was selfhosted.show slash 33. Okay, now don't, don't, don't lose me here. Like, just stick with this concept for a second, all right? Brace yourself. But what you went through trying to get ZFS working on that NAS is why I have slowly and begrudgingly coming around to just using ButterFS. But I want to use ButterFS. Well, you got, you know, I mean, it's, it's not so bad. It's really not so bad. It might be worth a try. I mean, I don't know how precious the data is you want to store on there, but you know, it just works. It's just built in and it has a lot of nice features. Like you can mix and match drive sizes and you can have copy on write and you can have snapshots and you can send and receive data around the network. It, can you though? I mean, so the, what I used to do this is the ZFS replication is Jim Salter's Sanoid Syncoid tools sure what do you do on butter i mean it's just it's just the same basic command line uh syntax there's not as many nice tools like sanoid built around it but it's there's a butterfs send and a butterfs receive much like zfs send and receive why does butterfs always feel like the annoying uncle at thanksgiving i know well do you know what i mean by they, that yeah i do they because it's it's an imperfect solution. It, the obvious solution would be for Oracle to relicense to the GPL or for there to be some sort of shift in the kernel team's view. But even, you know, kind of semi-recently, it seems like the kernel team has signaled very strongly that they're never going to capitulate on this issue. <laughs> um, and and they've, made, they've made some changes, I think, to make it even trickier that this upstream ZFS team had to respond to about a year ago. Yeah, that is unfortunate, isn't it? I, I wish there was a a way to reconcile these differences without fireworks and people cock blocking all over the place. But I don't know. It's, it's a tricky one. I feel like the thing about ButterFS is that Chris of two or three years ago would not, would not have said these things, mm -hmm. but 
the reality is there's been a lot of upstream improvements by developers at Facebook and at Red Hat, and they've made a lot of significant progress. And it's, you know, it would have been great, honestly, if it would have shipped as it is. If version 1.0 that the public saw was what it is now, you know what I mean? If it would have more like a ZFS kind of style where Sun built it for years in-house and then threw it over the fence, I think I think the perception would have been a lot better. So who's behind it? Facebook are the main ones I can think of. Yeah, I think Red Hat it has some involvement too, but it's the, like the core development team is employed by Facebook, I, I believe. Uh, SUSE developers also contribute upstream as well. That's off the top of my head. I'm sure there's others, but... Maybe I could do, oh, well, I, I doubt Syncoid would talk to a remote ButterFS endpoint, would it? But maybe I could just use rsync. Yeah, and there's rclone as well. Um, you know, we love that. Um, the thing is, is like when you look at when you look at the quote-unquote ARM future of the lower-powered ARM devices like the Pis and um, even laptops, ButterFS just makes so much more sense if you want all those things like compression, encryption, and copy on write, and sending and receiving, and you know RAID and mix match volume sizes, it just makes the most sense on a Raspberry Pi or on a laptop. That is true. Until ARM devices have that kind of generic kernel support like x86 does, yeah, and you know tons of RAM because ZFS, you know, if you have an ARM device with a 12 terabyte RAID or or let's be honest, maybe more like 40 terabyte RAID. And you want to do that in ZFS, you're going to need a fair amount of RAM. But with ButterFS, it's a much more manageable situation. Yeah, but I don't care about the performance as long as it's, you know, not horrible. Whether my ZFS replication at 2 a.m. takes an hour or takes 10 minutes, (laughs) I I don't care, really. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of how I feel, too, about my backups. Like, I don't really care. But when I'm, like, working during the day and I'm copying files on and off it, I want that to be really fast. But you could always do that with, like, a cache SSD or something, too. Yeah, but that's what I've got my big NAS for, my my server, yeah. my real <laughs> my real server, air quotes. You know, the other thing about the fan noise that I was going to mention is the way it would work for me is anytime I started to hear the fan spin up and I wasn't actively doing something, I'd want to SSH in and run HTOP and see what the hell's going on. Yep. <laughs> It's exactly what I did. I'm going to reboot it in a second, and I, w- I want you to hear what happens. And there's no GUI? There's no web GUI or anything? No. No, nothing like that. Why would there be? It's just it's just Linux. You know, if you want to put Cockpit on there, I guess you could. But Yeah, I mean, that's another area, right, where the, the other vendors, the QNAPs and the Synologies are going to have a more compelling new user experience. Or you could put... Uh, Open Media Vault on there, which is you know an obvious use case. I don't personally really like that project because I'm not or Freenas. I guess I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not as big on those as I used to be. And you know, I think with containers and and how easy it is to get that up and going, I just prefer to have a little more simpler of a setup now. And I don't really want all the overhead of a managed mm-hmm. Freenas or Open Media Vault. Absolutely. I wanted to hear this fan noise. But it needs to boot up first. These are with your improved fans, mm-hmm. which is so funny. I love that you did that. <laughs> what? You put new fans in there. Ah, right. You're like, well, I'm, while I'm in here, might as well. Did you have them just laying around or did you buy them? Uh, no, I bought them. <laughs> love All it. right. So um, I'm going to kind of try and move my microphone in such a way that you can hear without the fan control program just how crazy these fans are. Hold on. Okay. I'm going to press reboot now. All right. Whoa! No 
way. So that is what the fans, th- those are the Noctua fans. All right. So they're going a hundred percent. So if you, if you reboot your system, the firmware doesn't know what to do. So it, because the, the agent for the fan control stopped. So it just goes, Oh crap. I'm going to go to a hundred percent. That was significantly louder than I expected. I expected to be whinier. It's, it sounds like, um, you know, when you unbox one of those Dell servers or something, cause you think you're being cool and you buy a used server. Yeah. Uh, it sounds uh, similar to that, honestly. Well, like my super micro, uh, chassis out in the garage slash data center <laughs> is, uh, is louder, but it's not by much. <laughs> yeah. The fans rarely go to 100%, but if the CPU gets to like 65 or 70, I mean, you can go in and modify the fan curve if you want to. But once once the CPU gets up to that kind of 65, 70 temperature, that's the kind of noise that you hear. Stop it. Yeah. Oh. But most of the time, um, I don't know if this is because I'm not really using it for a whole bunch right now. Most of the time, it will just sit there quietly and you won't even know it's on. Well, at least your discs are real, real cool. <laughs> <laughs> 